Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Mr. Gadget, and uh, I had some time here this afternoon driving back from uh, an experience which very well may end up being a podcast in the future, uh, or maybe even a series of podcasts. Uh, why Steve is wrong, Steve Jobs, and why Steve is right. And I know that will rile a bunch of people up, probably, who listen to the HPR dot uh, org podcast, but you know, in some ways, you know, they have it wrong and they have it right. But uh, like I say, that'll be something that will probably uh, solidify into my mind as, as something that would be worth listening to at a later point. But uh, at this particular point, uh, it got me thinking on a subject matter that I do think would be uh, of interest, and that is open source software. This whole idea of how easy should the user experience be, and you know everybody knows Windows, and so they stay on Windows, and Windows is the easiest thing for them to buy on most of the machines that are out there. It's something they're at least somewhat familiar with, although each new version of Windows brings in new things that they're not familiar with, but they they're ingrained in that Windows way of of doing things. Uh, or on the Apple side, of course, uh, you know they're they're. Now, Apple is very much towards that user experience side of things. Uh, and in fact, that's where a lot of people have their issues with Apple and its walled gardens. It's because they, in order to control that user experience, have limitations that they will set in terms of what you can do with the device in order to maintain that user experience. And no matter what other kind of uh, issues you may have with them, I think that really is their primary uh, impetus for that, right, is really is to control the situation so that that user experience can be smooth. And then we come to open source, okay? What is it that you can do with a Windows machine or a, you know, OS X-based Apple piece of hardware that you cannot do with a, you know, equivalent hardware running Linux? Now, we're going to throw out, at least at this point, specific proprietary kinds of uh, applications or drivers that are needed for specific devices. There is just a certain amount of that, once again, because of their user experience uh, you know, that they're wanting to maintain, I guess, where there is a situation where some of those things are only available on Windows or on uh, Macintosh. And uh, so if you want to own an iPhone, which, you know, I know I said uh, uh, previously that I own an iPhone. That's what's in the pocket here. That's what I'm calling it on is an iPhone because I did my due, due diligence. I own still to this day some Nokia devices, the N800 uh, uh, and the, you know, the, the little Internet tablets. Uh, I went out there at the time frame of uh, you know, a couple of three years ago uh, with the uh, open devices that were there, I tried, like, I, I made a, a concerted effort to not get sucked into the black hole of iTunes. Because, you know, once you go in, you pretty much don't pull your stuff back out again. But it's impossible to pull it out. But, you know, once you're in there, you kind of stay in there. And I tried not to do that. But, you know... I tried to do video on those machines, and 
it was always stuttery because of the hardware that was involved and things like that. And, and finally, my friend Craig Stepp said that he had given up his device like that and had bought himself an iPod Touch because he just wanted it to work. And so I carried around an iPod Touch in my pocket for, you know, uh, quite a while. Uh, my daughter had an iPhone on AT&T using my upgrade. Can't play that world's greatest dad card forever. Uh, but, uh, you know, she w- wanted the new phone. Uh, hers was broken, and, and she used my upgrade to get her iPhone there. She has since moved on to that and is very happy with an Android device uh, because of the move to another state where AT&T wasn't an option for a carrier. In fact, pretty much your only option was a Verizon or Verizon. And uh, so she moved to the Droid and li- Droid X, and likes her Droid X, uh, and uh, was tempted to go back to the iPhone when it was available on the you know, Verizon network up there in the great state of Montana. But, you know, there's, there is this, there is an allure to it just works, okay? And so in the open source community, there are many who are probably now even turning off their iPods, or probably not iPods, if they're that vehement about this. You're turning off whatever device you're listening to. You're saying, no, he's crazy, you know, and freedom is important, and, you know, uh, and I'm never going to do that. And, and certainly that's your right, okay? But we have to keep in mind that we are a technical gearhead, propeller head group of people here who like playing around with stuff and seeing what we can do with it. And that's why we want a device that we can play around with and see what we can do with it. And, uh, you know, that's part of why we don't like that closed-walled garden, uh, whether it's a Windows-walled garden with the Zune or the walled garden with uh, iTunes and, you know, Apple, uh, anything like that that constrains us, we don't like it. But when you get down to it, it's that experience of using the and how smooth the installation and usage of the device is that ultimately is going to win the average consumer out there. So do we really want to be an average consumer kind of a thing, or do we always want to be the purview of a few technically oriented people uh, that are running servers and running their own software on their own? And that's an interesting discussion all in and of itself. When I first started MrGadgets.com, which never has turned out to be what I originally expected it to be, uh, I had a, a version of the site before I just switched over to my blog, which I never write anything on anymore. Uh, but uh, MrGadgets.com is still out there. It's my blogspot blog or whatever they want to call it this week. Uh, are they still blogspot blogs or has that changed? Anyway, uh, the MrGadgets.com, I used to have a little link to technological philosophy, and uh, and that's what I've always called myself, a technological philosopher. And when I talked about that, what I really meant is philosophy and the philosophers of the Enlightenment. I'm fascinated with the Enlightenment, uh, the things that can, occurred during that historical period, both in religion as well as uh, science. And in, in this case, when I call myself a technological philosopher, I am referring to the natural philosophers that were the ones that discovered all these things about the natural world 
and went out there and studied biology and botany and architecture and all these things that were developed during that Enlightenment period. And so that's what I see myself as doing now, is looking at the technological world that we live in as a technological philosopher, going out there and studying the technological world. Uh, and occasionally it spills over into philosophical questions uh, that we more normally think of as philosophy. Never taken a philosophy class uh, in my college days, uh, but I have done a little bit of you know, reading on my own. So the real question that occurred to me that I thought was interesting here was open source. And of course, with open source, and assuming, depending on how you know strict and stringent you are with your usage of open source, I tend to be like my friend Nightwise, Nightwise.com, highly recommended. Uh, that it is making technology work for you, whether it's proprietary technology, open source technology, it is getting technology that can make your life easier, smoother, happier, more organized. It's making that technology work for you. And so I am not an open source zealot, obviously, or else I'd have an Android phone in my pocket instead of, you know, the iPhone in my pocket. Now, I've got plenty of Android devices, and I can tell you for a fact that the Android device experience up until this point with various tablets that I have had to try out or in my possession is nowhere near the iPad experience. And it's not just the number of apps. It's how much they thought through the entire process. It's the user experience around it. And it is a superior user experience on the Apple devices. And even Honeycomb is not up to that same user experience. It's getting closer, but it's not the same. So in that respect, you're, you're making a stand here. You're making a philosophical stand. You're making a, a, a stand about your ethics that you want to live by as far as supporting open source, to whatever degree you do that. And some, my, my, you know, my friend Dave Yates, God bless him, doesn't do an MP3 version because he believes in, you know, the, the, the free and open source aspect of things. He doesn't like MP3 because it is encumbered by patents, and so he only does an odd version of the cast. And he is happy, you know, to, I mean, it doesn't bother him that that cuts out a great portion of people who listen to podcasts because he made a stand on that, and I respect him for it, okay? It makes it harder for me to listen to his podcast, but I respect him for making the stand, okay? Are you going to go all the way that far? Are you going to be a, I am making a firm commitment to only doing you know, things that are free and unencumbered? Or are you going to not care and not even know about it, which is 99% of the population? Or are you going to be like me and you're, you're going to use it as much as you can, but it's not like that's the only thing you're going to do? Whatever it is, you are, if you're listening to this, you're probably supporting free and open source as a concept to a certain extent. Now, whatever you think about free and open source, though, whether it's free as in beer or free as in speech, and really what we're talking about here is more the free as in speech aspect of things, right? The aspect of, you know, the freedom aspects that Richard Feldman 
has put forth about software, okay? Now, I'm going to make a statement here, and I would welcome anybody recording a podcast and 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 giving me a rebuttal to this, okay? Over and over again, I hear people say, both within the open source community, mostly there, but even outside of the open source community, I keep on hearing over and over, right, that data wants to be free, okay? Data wants to be free, not information. Information does not want to be free because information is data that is not just the deluge of data. It is data that has been processed and is in a more useful form. Okay, information you should be more than willing to pay for. Just the raw data wants to be free. Now there's a whole little discussion we could have on that in regards to things. Okay, but if you disagree with that, please record a podcast and and refute me. You know, tell me why I'm wrong in that particular respect. Okay, now well, we're talking about freedom, and this is something that. I must admit, I am as bad about as I'm going to, quote, unquote, accuse you of, all right? I'm just wanting you to think, because it's something I'm thinking about, and it's something I plan on taking action on. When it comes to the free as in freedom aspect of things, either one of those freedoms, the free as in beer or the freedom of speech, freedom of speech the free as in speech aspect of open source software does not come free. It comes, in fact by payment of the most precious commodity, the most precious currency, if you will, which is the subject of another podcast we're going to have in the future, that you have to spend, which is your time. It is the time of people that is put into the open source projects that makes them possible. Now, my question is, you are to a greater or lesser extent, a supporter of open source software and open source principles, and yet, do you have the skill set to actually put those principles into effect? One of those principles is the source code should be available to you so that you can modify it. Now, I used to program, back when programming was more about algorithms, okay, before GUIs came along. But I don't have the skill set at this point to be able to look at that open source code and make patches for it and and go in and contribute in that particular way. But there are other ways that I could. I don't think of myself as a writer, but I have done plenty of technical documentation in my life. And I talked in the last podcast about Heathkit documentation. And boy, that's what we strive for, right? You can sit down, and at the end of that set of instructions, you can solder together a functioning radio. Now, I don't know that we're ever going to get there for computer, uh, a computerized set of instructions, but, you know, the documentation that is out there for plenty of commercial things, let alone open source, could use a lot of work. And that's somewhere where I think I can contribute. And I can contribute in testing because God knows I've proven to plenty of people through the years I can find a way to break stuff. You know, uh, and uh, so, you know, I can test and I can contribute in that way. 
I can submit bugs and bug reports on things when I'm using that software and a bug exists. And even that can be helpful in just getting for people using them, using them in ways they haven't thought of before, and submitting those bugs. But I'm gonna be I'm gonna be personally trying to take more of an action step of not only going out there and submitting those kind of things, but also volunteering to test it when it's patched to see that it is working uh, in the the new design, right? Improve documentation. Can you do work to improve documentation or provide documentation for a project? And if every single one of us that listens to HBR can do two things. Number one, call in or record yourself an HBR episode and put it on the feed and talk about something that you're interested in. Talk about some particular project that you're interested in and the ideas you have to contribute to the project, either in coding or in the, the aspects that I'm talking about, of how you have found a way to submit bugs and tests, how you have found a way to contribute documentation, uh, organizing something to uh, help with documentation for a project. There's all kinds of things. We could have the, the, a feed that was just full of interesting projects, and everybody could have their pick of a project that they can jump in and help with. Okay. And number two, find yourself a project and find a way to contribute to it. And if everybody who listens to HBR would just do that, we would have a much better open source world. So because you can't code doesn't mean you can't contribute. And it's through those contributions that we can keep that fire alive of we should be able to see the code and we should be able to improve the code. And there's all kinds of ways to improve the code without having to actually code. That being said, I also need to really teach myself Python, which I've been saying for the last three or four years I am going to do. So if anybody wants to help me in that regard, I would be anxious to participate in that. Okay, so that's it. Go out there, find a way to contribute. Two ways to contribute. HBR episode, call in, the way I did, if nothing else. And number two, find a project and find a way to contribute to it even if you're not a coder. Other than that, this is Mr. Gadgets out here on the technological and philosophical frontier, blazing the trails from the real trailheads uh, to the west in the middle of the United States of America, wishing you a pleasant day, and we'll talk to you next time. And go out there and make something, do something, to make something, do something, software-wise. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. For more information on the show and how to contribute your own shows, visit hackerpublicradio.org.